As you prepare for retirement, you'll be faced with many important choices. We want you to make the right ones. Welcome to Financial Choices Matter with Charles Scott. Charles is an accredited investment fiduciary. He's well-equipped to help you make sound financial decisions. We want you to experience a meaningful retirement. On our podcast, we believe financial choices matter. Walter Storholt here alongside Charles Scott. He's the fiduciary advisor at Peloton Capital Management in Scottsdale. Find us online at pelotoncapital.com. And on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about some of your questions, the things that are on your mind when it comes to planning for retirement. It's one of our mailbag editions of the program. We always enjoy these because it's going to give us the opportunity to answer questions that you're thinking about and things that might be near and dear to your heart. And I'm going to take a guess that some of these questions will probably resonate with maybe a situation that you're going through right now. So stay tuned for a couple of questions coming up in a few moments. But first, it's time to see what's bugging Charles. Boy, are you bugging me, man? I'm getting bugged now. Whoa, man. Charles, what's on your mind? What's what's under your skin this week? Uh, there's not one every single week, Walter, but there's a lot of times when stuff in this financial planning investment world just makes me nuts. And I'm going to pick on... I'm going to pick on one of the giants in the industry today, and that's Vanguard and their mutual funds. And they have done a spectacularly brilliant job of getting everybody, everybody to believe that if you, you need to buy a mutual fund, you need to buy the one with the lowest fees because you're going to get the best results out of that because the fees are lower. And I'm going to say that that's not completely untrue, but lower fees don't necessarily equate to better performance. And given a choice, probably you should look at it. You know, if it's a ridiculously high fee, then that's kind of silly to do. What they never say, and this would be the Paul Harvey idea of the rest of the story, is that when mutual funds report their performance, they report performance net of all fees and expenses. So I'm going to ask you, Walter, a question. Okay. Would you rather have a mutual fund that gives you a 10% return or an 8% return on your money this year? Uh, I'll take the 10%. Okay. That wasn't a trick question. So that's, that is, in my opinion, at least the right answer. But if I told you that the 10% had a gross return before you took out all the fees and expenses of 12%, and it cost 2% to get down to the 10, whereas the 8% return to you only had a quarter of a percent fee. So they grossed eight and a quarter percent. You took away a quarter of a percent for fees and expenses and you got the 8% return, which would you rather have now? The 10% or the 8%? Well, 10% still more than the eight, right? That's exactly right. That's my point. That's what bugs me is that nobody tells you this. It's just take the lower fee. That's going to be a better outcome because the funds have to take everything out. And when they report the returns that the investors get, this has bugged me for years. And Nobody wants to tackle them, and I can understand why. And again, I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to step aside here and say, if you just line up all of the really, really expensive internal costs and funds, there is a significant likelihood that they're going to out underperform in many respects the lower cost funds. But to just have it be, it's not an absolute. Uh, and as an English literature major in college, words really matter to me, and there are very few absolutes. 
And I guess that would be, well, no, I said very few, not not none, but very few absolutes. <laughs> there ain't in, none in the, uh, absolutes. That's what you were going for, that, I think. <laughs> that's exactly it. Um, thank you. And this is just one of those things that you see over and over and over and over again. And it just bugs me. It just, it always has, it always will. Um, you know, and so I, I have, I have hopped on my donkey and call me Don Quixote today, but this is the windmill I'm going to go tilting at because it's not, it's not the low fee in and of itself. It's the rest of the investment performance that ultimately matters. And you got, I asked the question twice, would you rather have 10 or eight? And you got it right both times. And that's the way the public needs to think about it. But, I'm not, but you know, even with that easy of a math problem that you gave me, it took, I mean, it took me a second and I was trembling in my shoes a little bit going, I, I think 10, I think that's what I want. Yet it's not a hard math problem to figure out, but yet for some reason there's still hesitancy there. Well, yeah. Am I missing something? Is this a trick? Is he got things, yeah. you know, is there something that I really don't know about in this whole financial planning world? No, not really. It's pretty simple. This is the other thing, too, Charles, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure you see it the other direction as well. So some folks might see it in that front direction where, well, I just want the lowest fee. But then you have other people who ignore the fee and just want the highest return. But it, that scenario could easily be totally different where it's, well, you only made 8%. Uh, maybe we're not talking, you know, the, uh, you know, after fees, maybe it's okay. You can make 10% or 8%, but the 10%'s got 4% fees and the 8% only has a quarter. Well, I still want the 10% because that's the, that's the higher of the return between the two. People sometimes ignore the other element of that equation. They ignore the fees. You're telling me we just got to pay attention to both of them. You do have to pay attention to both of them because it all matters. It, you know, there's, there's, there are fees in some things that are just not necessary and they're redundant and they're way too high. So you, you've got to, you've got to break it all apart and make, and make sure you understand exactly what you're getting and what exactly what you're paying for. And that's the, that's what we do. I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I love going and digging in stuff and finding out what's really kind of under the hood and knowing that this particular investment idea, this justifies the cost of this because they're doing all this really slick stuff and it's a really creative way to do this. And I'm, I'm okay with that as opposed to other ones where, geez, they're just buying the same thing that everybody else does. And why are you paying so much? Yep. Yeah. You got to look at You got to look at the whole picture. If you missed our first podcast, go check it out. Uh, go look at episode number one, because on this topic of fees, Charles told us a great story about somebody who was getting uh, ripped off for back of a let uh, lack of a better term with their financial plan, especially this one particular product that had really high fees. So if you want to hear another story about how that uh, might impact you or how others have been impacted by high fees and that kind of thing, go check out podcast number one to listen to that story. Well, thanks for sharing uh, what's bugging you, Charles. Hopefully, we can get that in the past now. <laughs> Shake it off. You got, you know, you can come back down off the soapbox now, and we'll we'll go back into education mode. How's that sound? That's more than fair. <laughs> All right, so it's time for the mailbag where we answer some of your questions here on the podcast. And Lisa is going to kick us off this week. And uh, Lisa's from Glendale. She says it's a very simple question. Can you explain this four percent rule to me? How does it work, and is it something I should rely on? It's a great question, Lisa. Thanks for asking. And we get it fairly regularly. And I'm going to say two things about it. One, I'm going to tell you what it is. And two, I'm going to tell you why it's confusing to people. 4%, I got to tell you why it's confusing right from the start. The 4% rule is not a rule. It's kind of a rule of thumb. It was created 
many, many years ago by a financial planner in San Diego, Bill Bangan, and he was trying to find a way, what's the number that you can have that will allow you to withdraw money out of your retirement account and theoretically, you know, what rate of return do I need to get on it and what kind of withdrawal rate do I need to take to never run out of money given a reasonable life expectancy and reasonable investment returns? And that was where 4% came up. The idea is if you take 4% of your portfolio out in any given year, the likelihood of running out of money is virtually none. So it's never was a rule. It was always just a rule of thumb. But this industry just grabs on stuff that's so they think is the right answer because it's so simple. It's elegantly simple. Yeah, but it's not right. I don't care if it's elegantly simple. If it's not correct, then you don't want to call it a rule. That's another one of my pet peeves. But that 4% rule does make a difference. And when he did the math, when Bengen did the math to figure all this out and wrote extensively about it, we had different investment returns. We had different investment markets at that particular point in time. And so what's come to play lately has been if you here's a perfect example. You took you retired in the year 2000 and you started drawing money out of your retirement account. And in 2000 and 2001 and 2002, the investments market the investment markets went down and you're taking money out of a falling value portfolio. That's not a good idea. So then it got a little bit better and it went up in the 2000 and then 2007, 2008, and the beginning of 2009, it did it all over again. So this is something that's called sequence of return. And there's a risk in that because if you retire at the wrong time, it can be a bad thing. You're going to be taking a fixed amount out of your portfolio every year and the portfolio is going to be worth less and less and less. So the 4% rule conceptually makes sense and it's what's a safe rate of, re, you know, a withdrawal rate. What can I take it out? But it's not the be all and end all. And that's why I'm saying, I think it's a rule of thumb that it's not a rule. When you get to 70 and a half and have to start retaking required minimum distributions out of your retirement plans, the IRS says 3.65% is the where, where you start at age 70. So it's not 4%, but it's not that far off from 4 Now, they don't care that they're doing the math and so that you won't run out of money. They just want their money. That's the way that works. But that's the 4% not rule. I think that's what it ought to be called. I like it's not, that. It's, it's, <laughs> the, the, the 4% unrule or something like that. But yeah. yeah. Uh, the unruly 4%? No, that's not. That won't work. But yeah, it's just – it's. It is nowhere near gospel, it, so don't don't oh, embrace it as such. No, no, absolutely, abs again, absolutely not gospel. So that is an absolute, but I don't care. Good, good, uh, uh, good question though, Lisa. Yeah, no, I mean that's yes. a, like you said, that's a common one. A lot of people hear this four percent rule or some other financial rule, and so and it can be kind of dangerous because you apply that to your thinking and you kind of plug along thinking you're going to be all right, and it can lead you in a bad way if you're not careful. So. Good question, Lisa. Indeed. All right. What's next? We got one from, oh, look at this. We got one from Charlie, Charles. So uh, yes. Charlie's writing in. Uh, he is in Phoenix and says, I'm told. Yeah. Charlie's a her. Oh, Charlie's a her. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm sorry, Charlie. I'm told that I might still be able to get some kind of benefit from my ex-husband's social security, even though we've been divorced for almost 10 years. Is this true? What an intriguing question, Charles. What do you think, Walter? Um, I have a is little it? insight knowledge here to know that it is possible, right? Yes, exactly. It is possible. There are a couple of caveats like there are with all Social Security things. Uh, there's 2,000 
700 and some rules to Social Security. So this is just, just, a, just a handful. You know, just, just a couple. Um, yes, if you've been married, there's a couple, again, a couple of caveats. If you've been married for, if you were married for more than 10 years, so 10 years in a day, and you got divorced and you're not married now, then you have a right to claim um, a, your ex-spouse's Social Security benefit at no penalty to him. So he still gets all of his, you can have all of yours or half of his, whichever's greater while you're alive. Hmm. And I, this starts to get complicated and it's, I don't, I don't mean to do that, but the simple answer to Charlie's question was yes, you can. But then, then this is where all of those rules and regulations of social security kick in, but you've got to have been married 10 years. If you were married nine years, um, then you don't get it, but you get half of his, he gets, and he still gets all of his. And we used to tell the story um, in workshops that we did when we were doing a lot of pre-divorce financial planning, we would tell the story of, you know, the, the surgeon that had three ex-wives and a current wife, all of whom were married to him for at least 10 years. And he, um, they all were able to claim half of his social security benefit, which was greater than their own. All three of them would, and his current wife would get it too. And he still got all of his benefit. Wow. So people always people always scratch their head and said, "Well, then is that part of the reason Social Security doesn't work real well?" And it's just like, yeah, that's that's you know that's a little bit of One the of rule the of it. But yes, you can. You there are you know, and then you can also have if there are ex if Charlie's heaven forbid Charlie or maybe that would be a good thing if he passes away, then you can have a divorced an a, a, an ex spouse's survivor benefit also that's a didn't ask the question that's maybe more information that you wanted to know but you need to talk to somebody that really understands uh, the social security ins and outs because it's not even remotely as simple as it would seem on the surface so that's it, it is not an on and off switch right i mean there's so many different it, other complexities it, oh, to it yeah it's it's astonishing how complicated it really is so you, you need to, and, and the challenge with it from at least the experience that we've had is sometimes people don't know that the information that they're getting isn't correct. So you yeah. just, you got to trust, I, I'll be honest with you, Sherry in my, in our office um, is a whiz at this stuff. She studied it like crazy. She knows it inside and out. So if you've got questions and you called me, I'm going to aim you at her because she's the expert in all things social security here at Peloton Capital. The other thing I want to point out about Charlie's question here, and, and you drew this distinction, I just want to reiterate it, because Charlie phrased it as, we've been divorced for almost 10 years. So it sounds like she was concerned a little bit about the length of time that they'd been divorced. But if I'm understanding correctly, there whether it's been one year or 20 years since the divorce, as long as you were married for 10 years, and I think you said 10 years and de a day was your length of your marriage. That's the qualifier, the timeline of since the divorce. Uh, that doesn't have any impact on the take-home Social Security pay. Precisely. Okay. You got it exactly right. Just like you knew what you were doing, Walter. <laughs> there you go. You explained it so well, Charles. I just pulled, <laughs> pulled right along behind you. <laughs> All right. Great question, Charlie. Thank you for submitting that one as well. If you'd like to submit a question, by the way, we invite you to go to PelotonCapital.com and you can contact the team right through the webpage there and we can feature your question on the show. But if you have a question just directly for Charles or Sherry and the folks there at Peloton, uh, we don't have to feature your question on the show either. You can ask it privately. So no worries there. One last question comes to us from Lynn in Scottsdale before we wrap up the podcast for this week. Lynn says, I've always assumed 
that it's better to work with a big financial company because they presumably have so many resources compared to, you know, some smaller independent office. What would be the reason for deciding to work with a smaller company? I'm really prejudiced here, Lynn, because I've worked for three major wirehouses, brokerage firms uh, in my career and have been independent and smaller <laughs> than uh, for a long time. I'm going to ask the question, and I know you, you're not here to answer, but you know, how complicated are your needs? Because I will be perfectly honest, if you have a really sophisticated, really complicated financial life, it might be an advantage to work with a bigger firm to, than, than, say, us. Um, and we would be candid enough to tell you if that was the right thing for you and the best thing for you, because that's just the way we do stuff. But in reality, the vast majority of the time is you're going to get a cookie cutter approach from a big company. They're going to do and treat almost all of the clients in a very, very similar manner. And they're not necessarily the most creative folks in town. Um, and there's some things that they just won't talk to you about in from a financial planning point of view, because their compliance department doesn't want you to. So, I mean, there's, there's some potential advantages to doing it. I was there before and I just didn't like being told what I had to sell people um, and whether that was appropriate for them or not. I'm adamantly pro-independent, objective, unbiased advice. And you don't get that in a big, in a big brokerage firm. You just don't. Um, I will tell you that I'm gigantically opinionated. If you haven't figured this out now, um, you'll find that out if you keep listening to these podcasts. But um, that's my take on it. Yeah. it Could it serve you well if you're – Again, if, you're, if your situation is really, really complicated and there are some significantly obtuse things you're trying to accomplish and that's not who our typical client is. And if, we, if you walked in the door and we found that's who you were, we would probably say we're not a good fit because that just, you know, we don't want to try and fit a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't work for us. It won't work for you either. So uh, great question. And, you know, just because they spend more money advertising than we do doesn't mean that they're always going to give you a better outcome than we can. I, I would add to this, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Charles, because there's probably several other differences we could draw between the big company versus working with uh, an independent office like yourself. But uh, part of the independence is you can shop the entire financial world. And when I say world, I mean, literally, you can you can go anywhere and kind of find and, and do anything versus a company who may have, not to say that these are negative uh, motives or sinister by any means, but they may have motives or reasons for why they might want to uh, fit you into, maybe that's a good way to describe it, a particular financial product or strategy that allows you to use their products a little bit more. Maybe kind of like going to the Ford dealership and you know they're going to want to put you in a Ford, not necessarily steer you to a used Chevy that they might have some you know sitting on the lot somewhere, even if that might be the best fit for you overall. That uh, that Ford's going to probably look to be the better fit for you. Is that a, a decent analogy, or am I stretching? Oh no, you're not stretching at all. And that could be something that we could spend several podcasts talking about. <laughs> uh, all the things that have gone on in in that vein over the years that that I've been witness to. Um, yeah, it, if you're okay with that, then I think that's great. But that's what you're going to get. You're going to get a Ford, um, even if you wanted a Chevy and needed a Chevy. I think that's a perfect analogy. And and doesn't mean it's bad, just means it's different. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a great point. Maybe even a better illustration. What you needed was the the fuel efficient efficient Prius, and instead you got the, you know, the big Ford truck or something like that. But we'll leave the car metaphors there for another day. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, Charles, very helpful. These were really good listener questions. I know these are just probably. Um, well, I'll ask you: Are these indicative of what you get in the office each and every day? Are these the kinds of questions people are bringing to the table? Oh yeah, people are people. They they all think. In, in similar fashions, they all have similar concerns. They want to know. They want to know that they can ask somebody that's going to know either know the answer or be honest enough and, and say to them, because if we get asked a question we don't know, I'll say, hey, I don't know, but I'll find out. No one's ever asked, or I don't know that, uh, but we'll figure it out for you. We always say, we know what we don't know, and that's really a, an important distinction for people to make, and we'll never give you an answer that we don't really know is absolutely correct, And so, but people ask the same questions. Because it's human nature. They have the same concerns. They have the same fears. They have the same issues. It's never identical, but it's really similar. These are absolutely regular regular kinds of questions from regular kinds of folks. So we always appreciate them. If you have questions like this, or maybe you've got a question you think will stump Charles, we'd be happy to uh, field that question. I don't think it's going to happen, but uh, you can certainly ask him. PelotonCapital.com is the place to go. Get in touch with us through the website. That's PelotonCapital.com. Or you can call the old-fashioned way, 480-513-1830 is the number. That's 480-513-1830. You do not have to have your question featured on the show. You can just have a one-on-one conversation if you've got concerns or questions about your particular financial plan or situation. But if you want it featured on the show, we're happy to do that as well. 480-513-1830 or pelotoncapital.com. Charles, as always, thank you, sir, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the next podcast. Thank you, Walter. Looking very forward to it. For Charles, I'm Walter. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next time on Financial Choices Matter. Financial planning and investment advisory services are provided by Peloton Capital Management Limited, a state-registered investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. No one should assume the information presented here serves as a receipt of or substitute for personalized individual advice provided by Peloton Capital Management. For more information, visit www.pelotoncapital.com.